How does one introduce a woman who's worked in the Sudan, the Arctic, India, Kazakhstan, who's interviewed Gaddafi, and who's hidden from the Taliban and worked in one of the world's most dangerous cities, all to tell a story? Today, we're talking with Peter Brekelly, one of New Zealand's most intrepid storytellers. She's a filmmaker, and she's here with us today. Welcome, Petra. Thank Thanks for coming. You. It's lovely to be here. Your film, A Flickering Truth, premiered at Venice a year ago. Mm-hmm. You said about the film, it unwraps the world of three dreamers and 8,000 hours of film covered in dust of 100 years of war. What a captivating description. Mm. It is, because it, it was the... It was one of the most extraordinary um, experiences of my career. And what I wanted to do in that short paragraph was to sort of give viewers a little piece of this adventure I went on with these people. Because over the, I sort of came upon the story and then over a period of two and a half years, they uncovered these films and I filmed that. And so every day, was this sort of magical mystery tour of what would be uncovered today. So they didn't know the journey, I didn't know the journey, and we just went on the, uh, uh, through this period, through this experience together. How did you stumble on this story at all? Mm, I was in Afghanistan in 2006, doing a quite different film, and I knew it was a place I wanted to come back to. It's the kind of place I like to be. Well, tell me what that means. It's the kind of place I like to be. Yeah. I mean, most people, when they think of, of Afghanistan, think of war, think of danger, yeah. think of uh, restrictions. Yeah. I think, you know, my storytelling is always, I'm always trying to address what the norm is, I think. And I think that those aspects are what we have been fed by news and propaganda and short pieces of, of information fed to us. And yet I found a country incredibly rich, very beautiful, and, a, and, a, and an incredibly resilient people that are so welcoming. And yes, there is this horrific war going on and they live in conflict um, and so there is the complexity of all of that but for me as a storyteller that adds to why I want to be there and why I want to tell the story. I love a story that has complexity and has a depth beyond a short reportage. My films are feature length, they're 90 minutes and so that needs a lot of threads in it and you get that in a place like Afghanistan. But for me also why I say I like to be in places like this. And also, you know, I come from a place of privilege. I'm a white Western woman. So for me to actually even say that, I have to say, of course, my Afghan friends, they can't leave. They don't have passports like I have or the access to money like I have. So when I say I like to be there, I understand that that's quite a, you know, that's a very privileged place to, to say, you know, to come from, to say that. So I just sort of want to acknowledge that, that I understand what I'm saying. But, um, and that sort of also circles around, I'm kind of getting a bit tangential here, but it circles around, I'm often challenged by people who say, what right do you have to tell this story? Because I do tell these stories all over the world, um, and they, um, they are stories that interest me, and so I think they'll interest other people. But they, you know, I am not Afghan, um, I am not Sudanese, I'm not Russian, you know, I am not you know, a young Māori boy, I'm just thinking back on the films I've, I've, I've made. Um, so, but I think through my films I show um, the similarities across us all and that um, 
we are the differences that I celebrate also show how we are all alike and so in the people in Afghanistan I found a people that want the same things we want they want safety security education a house you know roof over their head they want everything we want and for me that you know th those kind of storylines are much more important to me than uh, soldiers which I think has been the main, you know, reportage that we've received of, out of Afghanistan soldiers, the Taliban, the occupation. Um, yeah, I, I think that's one of my favorite things about this story. It's that although we're talking about Afghanistan and we're talking about a war-torn country, we're actually looking at three men and yourself who are following a dream. You said yourself they're three dreamers. Dreams aren't limited to those of us who have privilege. Dreams are all over the world. They're in the Sudan. They're in all of these places where you've filmed. Tell me about the three dreamers. One of them in particular reversed course and fled his safe location in Germany to come back to Afghanistan to tell the story with you. Yeah. More or less. Yeah. So our Ibrahim Arfi, so he is an Afghan who, um, you know, fled to Russia and then lived for 20 years in Germany. Um, and then when um, the government sort of determined that they do need to do something with these films and protect them they brought him back to try and you know save these films and so when he said he was approached in his as you say his lovely safe life in, in a first world country he didn't hesitate and his wife said yes you must go she could see that there was this you know this need for him to go back and to do something for his country and um, it's really interesting because his wife and his two sons, is the, who have never been to Afghanistan and don't speak Dari at all, they speak Russian and German and English, because um, his wife is Russian. Um, actually, she's from Ossetia. That was incorrect of me. Um, <laughs> but, you know, when they came to the screening in Venice, his wife was after the screening just she was weeping and she said to me you've shown another side to my husband and one of the sons said to me I really that he really wanted to go to Afghanistan now and I just thought oh so he must or if he must be a different person kind of in their world and when he's in Afghanistan he obviously maybe he feels completely at home and more at ease but I think also they saw this drive their father had to save these films and, and the importance of that so he was in the film industry he was a 16 year old you know he would hang out and make films with his friends and he is in some of the films that you see in my film because there are excerpts of the work of Afghan filmmakers in the film and um so he had this whole kind of appreciation of film that began in Afghanistan. So for him to return, it was like he was saving his own, his own history. Tell me about why he was jailed in the Soviet era under the Mujahideen. That's all to do with his filmmaking. Wow. You know, yeah. So it was, it, you know, it was sort of a shutdown of, of um, any other form of, you know, um, awareness from the other side. You know, I mean, you, you can't you know when there's controls in a conflict situation and it isn't just you know um, I mean all of us going in there and the Americans and all the other people in the in the so-called alliance I mean everybody's controlling they're controlling media all the time and so it was a similar situation with he and his friends. So it must have brought up a lot for him to not only return to Afghanistan to to rebuild the archives, but also to make this film with you. Yeah, and it was, you know, incredible um, luck that I came upon the story. So 
after 2006, I realised I did want to go back. And in 2012, I, I had this idea and I thought, I'll go back. I'm just really interested in what people like myself do during years of conflict when they don't have the tools for their storytelling. You know, they don't have cameras or access or freedom. And what happens in that situation? So I went back and I've been mentoring these two young filmmakers for quite some time in, in Kabul. And so one day I said to Gulistan, one of them, Alyssa and Gulistan, and I said, will you come with me? I want to find out about this place. I've heard that there's this slightly mythical place where the films of Afghanistan are stored. I want to see what are these films. And he said, you'll never get there. You know, not we don't even uh, we don't know what's in there. What does you'll never get there mean to someone like Peter? No, nah, it's a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I'm just thinking, oh, yeah, that's what people tell me all the time. You know, I mean, that's... That is, for me, I just shrug it off. I never, ever think I can't get anywhere or get access to somebody or, you know, th that that doesn't mean anything to me. It excited you more or less. So. Yeah, yeah. And, that, you know, and the, the crazy thing was that I sort of chose probably the worst day to try and get to the archive. So the archive itself is in what they say is one of the most heavily guarded roads in the world. It has a number of embassies along it and it has... The, um, the ISAF headquarters there and so you go through a number of checkpoints to get there but before we even got to those checkpoints um, there were checkpoints all through the streets and I said to Gulistan gosh they're stopping us a lot you know we were walking it was a really hot day I was fully covered I said they're stopping us a lot it feels like there's a been a suicide bomb this morning could you just tell me what you were covered in just describe to us for listeners oh, so what were you wearing yeah so in Kabul you know, I carry around a burqa, but in Kabul it's it's much more liberal than outside, so I don't wear a burqa there, you know, at all. Um, oh, sometimes I have, but so I just have a headscarf. You don't have any hair showing, you know. You have clothes down to down to your wrist and your ankles, and it's loose flowing clothes and nothing brightly coloured, you know. And just, I mean, it's pretty obvious I'm a Western person. I'm twice as big as all the other women there. And somebody said to me, "You walk differently as well." So <laughs> maybe I walk with confidence. I don't know, but um, so he and I are walking across the city, and there was also helicopters overhead and a lot more military. You know, there were tanks going by and stuff. Or, not tanks, whatever they're called, um, the big, big car things, and um, and so the next time we were stopped, and uh, you know my passport was checked and his credentials were checked, he asked the police guy that stopped us, and he said, "Oh, um, Hillary Clinton has arrived, and Hillary Clinton had come to town for one day into Kabul, into Afghanistan, and so it really was. It took us hours to get to the gates of the um, of the." the archive where these films were stored and so by that stage I was even more determined to get through those gates but the the guards came out you know they all have guns and they said you can't come in no no you know you've got no right to be here and I just sort of said well I've come all the way from New Zealand and I just and Gulistan was like we've, we've got to go and I said no no we're not going to go we're going to you know we'll just stand here and so after a while the guards got really uncomfortable and they brought somebody else out and that person said you, you know you know you can't come in and and I said, oh, please, is there not somebody I can talk to? And just kind of pushed, you know, but gently. And it was pretty clear I wasn't going anywhere. So then he brought somebody else out. And they made a phone call and they said, all right, come in and meet the new director. And Arafi had started very soon, you know, a few days earlier. And I said to him what I was and what I was about. And that I was interested in what were in these sheds and what was in these films. And he said, OK, let's discover it together. So it was kind of, you know, timing, you know, a bit of, you know, kind of believe in the story. Mm. Um, 
but but you know also I had no idea it would become this. I knew after the first days it would a couple of days it would become this 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 film a feature length film. But initially I didn't. But as soon as I met Isak, the old man, so there's three main characters in the film, Mahmoud the gardener, Isak the old man, who actually lived in the offices for 32 years. That was his home, waiting for somebody to come and save these films. And Arif He literally the, waited three decades for someone to come and save the films. Yeah. So he either had a really wonderful connection immediately with Ibrahim Arafi or... Not no that part of the film. Yeah, that we should you wait see for. it in the film. <laughs> yeah, you see it in the film. And when I, you know, I think as a documentary filmmaker, like fiction filmmakers, I do think we cast we cast people. You know, you find we don't find actors, we find real people that we think can hold a film. And as soon as I met Isak, I thought I have a film. He is one of the most extraordinary characters I've ever met. He's the most beautiful person. I won't tell you what happens in the film, but, you know, he is, um, yeah, he is this amazing light. And um, and so that was when I knew I had something. I want to back up to something you said before. You talked about the persistence getting you access to the archives. And it makes it seem sometimes a little bit seamless. But the reality is you must have had obstacles all over the place. I know reading about the film that there was a day where you were stuck alone in a car and uh, you said yourself, things could have ended very differently. Yeah. And I think leaving that to the imagination is all we need. Yeah. But tell me, why do you, mm. Petra, mm. <laughs> why do you risk your life to tell stories? I don't think about it as risking my life. You know, I really, really believe these stories need to be captured. I believe so um, completely that that you know this is a skill I have and I have you know the greatest thing that I think my parents gave me was an inquisitiveness you know and um, mixed with a bit of naivety and a hell of a lot of you know um, determination but I really you know I get so excited by these stories and I think gosh if I'm excited then other people will be too and how will it change all of our thinking you know how how might it just sort of shift us and make us more aware and more open or more compassionate or you know I don't know I just think and not for this generation the next or whatever I mean I think it's really important that the story has been captured and that's what drives me on. Earlier you said that you come from a place of privilege and we were talking about uh, perspective and um, fetishizing Mm. um, various cultures and countries but the reality is you've actually put a second mortgage on your home to make films. Fourth. A fourth mortgage <laughs> well, on the your bank home. doesn't really know what oh, they now they, they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I go through huge financial risk. When I say I come from privilege, you know, in the first, I'm a white woman in the first world, and okay, I don't come from from money, but I, you know, I if there's an emergency or something, I can do something. I can access money and I can get away. And I have three passports. So that's a luxury in itself. You know, my friends in Afghanistan, they don't have one passport. So um, those, you know, I do think they're all elements of privilege. And also I come from a, you know, a, a family background that says there's no constraints to you, you can do whatever you want. That is so privileged to think in my head that I can do whatever I want. That's, that's an extraordinary thing to have been taught and to have had bred in me. So... You know, I don't think pri privilege is not just if you're a white man with lots of money, which I think is the most privileged position in the world. Um, I think that there's other levels of privilege too.
I think there's also a level of privilege here that is your awareness that you have this mm. freedom because a lot of people are even those white men with a lot of money they're trapped in the world thinking that they need to create yeah more wealth yeah and that wealth generation is not a privilege no um, no it can seem like it yeah Oh, no, completely. And that's another aspect of going to places like Afghanistan. Of course, it, it's like a reset. You know, you kind of, we live very simply. We never stay in hotels. We don't go, you don't, don't hang out in the green zone. Don't hang, never go to embassies. You know, try to avoid hanging out with foreigners, except for other journalists. We rent rooms in people's houses, and we just stay on, you know, the local streets and stuff. And so that also makes you think, I can live really simply and I can be very happy with not very much. And I think, you know, then I come back to, to my life here in New Zealand and I think, no, I'm, I'm fine with, you know, I have a really nice apartment, but my car's pretty shitty, but, I, you know, it gets me from A to B and I don't need lots of clothes. I mean, I just think you kind of, those things are really important for me to reset as well. Tell me what scares you. Gosh, lots of things actually scare me, but I think that that's quite exciting too. I mean, I was scared a lot of the time in Afghanistan, but I think that that's, that's also an incredibly humbling experience because it makes you think of the other people who live this day to day and cannot leave. But it also, you know, it, it makes you realise your mortality and um, what that means. You know, I mean, there was another occasion. So part of my filmmaking process is I always show the film to the subjects before I've absolutely completed it. And while they know right from the word go that they have no editorial control at all, this is my film, but if culturally I've done something that's really inappropriate or insensitive, and it might be something like a particular culture doesn't want a, a photo of a dead person to be shown. It's something like that. So I always show them, and then if they have something they want to discuss, then we can discuss it, but I will say why I've made that you know, filmic decision. So, you know, got the film to sort of a finished rough cut stage and I went back to, I contacted Arafi and said, I'm going to come back and show, you know, show you all the film. And he said, well, it'll just be me and some government officials. And I said, well, I'd rather everybody was there. He said, no, 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 just, just me. And I thought, okay, well, you know, you, you see the kind of character Arafi is in the film and there's, you know, a way to kind of work with him, which I learned over the two and a half years. So I went back and, um, and they had a room set up in the main theatre and so I said and they sort of he, he had this big chairs at the front for he and the government officials and I said right well I'm just going to sit at the back so we you know the projectionist was there and started playing the films the lights went off started playing the film and all the people who worked with the films started quietly sneaking on in which I just thought was wonderful so all of a sudden there was 70 people in the room and you know of course the first time that they all laughed Arafi realized that there was all these people now behind him but it was actually a really beautiful screening it was a fantastic um, event and I've never ever had a screening where the subjects of the film don't ask for anything to be changed except no they never did well, yeah every 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 other film I have ever made people want something different they were so generous and they appreciated all the decisions I'd made. And I think because they came from a film world as well, they could sort of see what the story was, you know, why I had made the decisions I'd made. Peter Brett Kelly, director of A Flickering Truth, among many, many other films. Uh, a Flickering Truth in Wellington will be screened on Thursday at... Mm -hmm. I think it's at Te Papa. It's part of the New Zealand Film Festival. Okay. 
late August, it will be in uh, screened in Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch, Dunedin. Mm-hmm. October, New York. Later on in the year in France and in Australia later on in 2016 as well. A flickering truth, everyone. Uh, I can't speak highly enough of Peter Brett Kelly's films. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. And uh, thanks for being on, spending time with us on Wellington Access Radio. Thank you. Lovely.